them. We're in Matthew chapter 6. At least that's our starting place. We're looking at the Lord's Prayer. And um, I started uh, to look at this by saying in my initial comments, our study on the Lord's Prayer has shown a clear foundation in the Old Testament. Well, in my mind, it has. I'm not so sure I communicated that to you, <laughs> that you are got that clear. Um, when you're just looking at the phrases, our Father, and then the next phrase, which art in heaven, it may not be so abundantly clear. But when we take all the rest of the phrases with these and collectively put them together in this prayer, I think we can see that this Lord's Prayer is a prayer regarding the future end-time events. The future end-time events in which the Lord will fulfill all of his promises that he has made to Israel, and including us, but particularly to Israel, and that it's a prayer that we as believers can pray because we're we are going to be and will be involved in that, those end-time events. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, the Lord's Prayer says this, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Now, of course, that ye we noted was plural. That's talking about all of the disciples, all of you. This is the model prayer. This is how you should pray. Our Father, which art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory to the ages, or forever. Amen. Now that's a, a prayer that we are very familiar with, but it, somehow we wonder, how does this fit in context with anything? And in particular, the Sermon on the Mount. What does it all mean for the disciples, and what did it mean at this particular juncture in the Sermon on the Mount? And when we noted the relationship of our Father, we saw that it was, and, and we looked at prayers in the Old Testament where God was called our Father, we saw that it was always in connection with the Exodus. Now that may not seem so significant yet, but it will be, and I think maybe today we'll see that just exactly the direction that that takes us in. And then when he says, which art in heaven, or in the heavens, it distinctly sets God apart from all the earthly idols that men were accustomed to worship, 
when they went up to every high hill, when they went down into the valleys, when they went under every green tree, and they carried their wooden or metal or gold or silver idols with them and took their incense along with them to worship their false gods. It set God apart. And finally then, for this morning, we come to this phrase, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. What was the Lord trying to tell his disciples then if this has to do with the future end-time events? What does hallowing his name have to do? And what would the disciples have been thinking in their own minds when Jesus told them, pray like this, say, Lord, may your name be hallowed. May your name be made holy, because that's what the word hallowed means, or may your name be sanctified. This word is actually translated sanctify more than anything else in the New Testament. But it is translated holy or make holy, and it's also translated here as hallowed. So How could hallowing God's name or reverencing God's name, as we might think of it, have anything to do with the future uh, fulfillment of God's promises to Israel and the coming of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, have anything to do with such a concept? Well, I think it's going to be interesting to see just what the relationship is. First of all, we want to note that the, this, this phrase really, it, it's almost hidden in the English translation because it's an imperative. And if you look up the tense and the voice and the mood, you will find that the tense is imperative. Excuse me, aorist. And the mood is imperative. And it is, it is a statement that, as I, as I stated it there, would be better probably understood to say, may your name be hallowed. It is a prayer that, that is uh, being in the aorist tense, which we recognize as a and I don't like to use this word, but it's the best one I've got right now, but this punctiliar action. But that's really what it is, as opposed to something that goes on over a period of time. But the point of it is, is that it lends a sense of urgency and finality. And if you catch that imperative and the heiress together. And when you think about the coming events of the Lord's return and his placing of Israel in the land and the calling up of his saints, 
then we might grasp a little more deeply and a little more fully the sense of urgency behind a prayer like this and why he asked the disciples and told the disciples, when you pray, say this, may your name be hallowed. May your name, Father, be sanctified. May it be made holy. And because we've stated already over and over that there is an Old Testament backdrop to this prayer, then we might well turn to the Old Testament and say, well, I wonder where in the Old Testament that we find such language. And we don't have to look very far, really, to find it and, I think, begin to make some sense out of it. But one of the things that might come up immediately would you would say, well, why do we need to make the Lord's name holy? Isn't it holy already? Is it not a name which we rever and regard as believers and would not use in a vain way? I trust we wouldn't. I know some Christians who do. Believers who use God's name. Not when I say vainly, I don't mean necessarily cursing. I say vainly, meaning they just use it without any forethought. And they use it in that senseless repetition or that vain use of phraseology that we get accustomed to. And on Wednesday night, we talked about how in the Old Testament scriptures, God was really upset with Israel and those who were disobedient because that's exactly what they were doing. And they were using phrases like, as the Lord lives. And we, we could use such a phrase by saying something like, um, um, I swear on God's word. I'll put my hand on his Bible. I swear on, on the Bible. Or, you know, or, or using other such common expressions without really giving any substance to it and thought behind what we're saying. Now, <clears throat> back in uh, Exodus chapter 3, it's important, I think, that we start here because you might remember that as a part of what we've been talked about already with our Father and the phrase, which art in heaven, We've related it back to the Exodus. God bringing his people out of Egypt and and slavery and bondage and delivering them into a freedom that they had never known and taking them through the wilderness experience up to the land that he had promised them, this land of Milk and honey and abundance like they had never known in Egypt. In chapter 3 of Exodus, beginning with verse 13, Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? 
And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. And so they knew. They knew that there was something unique regarding God's name with respect to what God was about to do in bringing Israel out of Egypt. Now, with that in mind, turn over to uh, Leviticus, excuse me, Leviticus and chapter 20, and we'll look first of all at verse 3, I believe, yes. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 3. And then stick your finger over in chapter 22, because we'll be going over there in just a second. But here, God, of course, giving instructions to Israel regarding their relationship to him. Now that they're out of Egypt and have entered into this new relationship, he tells them in verse 3, And I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given of his seed unto Molech to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. And then over in chapter 22 and verses 2 and 3, Verse 1 says, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and to his sons, that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel, and that they profane not my holy name, in those things which they hallow unto me, or sanctify unto me. I am the Lord. Say unto them, Whosoever he be of all your seed among your generations, that goeth unto, unto the holy things, which the children of Israel hallow unto the Lord, having his uncleanness upon him, that soul shall be cut off from, from my presence. I am the Lord. And look at verse 32. <clears throat> verse 31, he says, there shall, Therefore shall ye keep my commandments and do them, I am the Lord, neither shall ye profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed, sanctified, made holy, set apart among the children of Israel. I am the Lord which hallow you, that brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So this hallowing, this separating, this sanctifying of his name was important to him. Now, <clears throat> at the time, and we want to, that uh, 
the Lord Jesus was speaking to his disciples in his earthly ministry, as well as back in Ezekiel chapter 20. And I want you to turn there. Ezekiel chapter 20. Conditions in the world were a lot different for Israel than they were when they first came out of Egypt. So Ezekiel chapter 20. And here we find in a, uh, some prophecy that Israel, or that, excuse me, that Ezekiel gave regarding Israel, that he employs this hallowing or sanctifying language in much the same way that you see it in this prayer. And the, we need to see then the backdrop to this is this reference to the Exodus once again, as we saw with our father over the last two weeks. The Exodus and then the future deliverance, the future bringing of Israel into the land as a new Exodus, a new deliverance, a new fulfillment, as it were, of God's promises and doing in the future what he has already done for Israel in the past. In chapter 20, now this is a, I don't know how to deal with this. I mean, it is a, just a nifty little chapter. I just like going through these things. It is so fun. Ezekiel chapter 20. Uh, in the first uh, 20 chapters of, or 22 chapters, I forget what it is now. God is, is um, it's 24 chapters. Um, these, these verses here were written prior to the fall of Jerusalem. Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's reminding his listeners, his readers, of what is about to come on the city. And beginning in chapter 20 and verse 1, listen to what he says. And it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Then came the word of the Lord unto me, saying, Son of man, speak unto the elders of Israel, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Are you come to inquire of me? As I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Wilt thou judge them? Cause them to know the abominations of their fathers. And say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, in the day when I chose Israel and lifted up mine hand under the seed of the house of Jacob and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up mine hand unto them, saying, I am the Lord your God. In the day that I lifted up mine hand unto them to bring them forth of the land of Egypt into a land that I had espied for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Don't you love that phrase? 
I had to highlight that. We're going to see it again. It is the glory of all lands. So here, God is telling Ezekiel to remind these elders of what took place when I called them forth and brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so in verse 7, he says, Cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. Another phrase I had to underline. In a different color, of course. The idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. And they did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes. Neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But, he says, I wrought for my name's sake. Now that word wrought just means he acted. And some translate it that way. I acted for my name's sake. So take note of that. You're going to see this again in this chapter. Four times altogether. I acted for my name's sake. In what context? In bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. Delivering them. Bringing them up to and into the promised land. He says that it should not be polluted before the heathen. That is just not a good thing. When we take the Lord's name, And we use it in such a way that we pollute it before the unbelieving world. God doesn't like that. And he certainly didn't like it here. So he says, Among whom they were, in whose sight I made myself known unto them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. In other words, he's just saying, in bringing them forth out of the land... God revealed himself and made himself known unto his people through these mighty acts that he did. Verse 10, he says, Wherefore, I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. Well, we, we know about that. He says, I gave them my statutes. We read some of those just a minute ago in Leviticus 20. He says, and I showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. Verse 12, moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. Boy, what a constant reminder every Saturday. Every seventh day, when they would remember the Lord by remembering the Sabbath and realize that God had set that nation apart for himself. That's what that constant week in and week out observance was all about, to remind them they didn't belong to anybody but Jehovah, to Yahweh. So then, we're getting close here. 
Verse 13. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. Now that's that first generation. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. And my Sabbaths they greatly polluted. And then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. Well, he did. It makes it sound like he would have just gone out there and, you know, poof, and they're gone. But it took him nearly 40 years to let them die off. Some of them he got rid of instantaneously, opening up the earth and boom, down they went. Verse 14, but I acted for my name's sake. God once again reminds Israel he acted for his own name's sake. No wonder he wants it hallowed. No wonder he wants us to pray that his name would be made holy. He says that it should not be polluted before the heathen. We saw that already, didn't we? This is the second time he's repeated the same thing. In whose sight I brought them out. Yet also I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness that I should not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all Lands. You ought to underline that again. Verse 16 says, Because they despised my judgments and walked not in my statutes, but polluted my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Well, now we find the true measure of what was wrong. It was their heart. And in their hearts, They went after idols. Now I know I'm, here I go. I just happened to think of a verse over here. And um, look over in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Do you remember when Stephen was uh, preaching his sermon? And he was recounting the history of, of his people as well to those who were about to stone him to death. And in verse 39, Acts chapter 7, verse 39, he says, To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. You know, that's the problem with all of us. You could still keep coming to church. We might not even know that you've turned your heart back to Egypt, to the world. How would anybody know until it manifests itself in deeds and actions? But the heart is the issue. The heart's the problem. I just happened to think about that one. Okay, back now to Ezekiel chapter 20. Hope you kept your finger there. So in verse 17, he says, Nevertheless, 
Mine eyes spared them from destroying them, neither did I make an end of them in the wilderness. But I said unto their children, oh, now this is the second generation. I said unto their children, walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. For I am the Lord your God, walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and hallow, sanctify, set apart my Sabbaths and they shall be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They walked not in my statutes, neither kept my judgments to do them, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. They polluted my Sabbath. Then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my name's sake. Third time that we see God telling Israel that through their experiences and their rebellion in the wilderness, all of his actions were for his name's sake. That it should not be polluted in the sight of the heathen in whose sight I brought them forth. Now, I really, really would like to read the rest of this passage down to verse 32, but I'm going to have to let it go and you read it later. I want to take up with verse 33, because when the Lord is finished telling Ezekiel to tell these people what happened back there in the Exodus, and how they rebelled against me, and how I had to deal with them, and how I had to protect my name. And I acted on behalf of my name. Then he turns in verse 33 and says this, As I live, saith the Lord God, Surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. Boy, that's that's something to come yet. They're still scattered among the nations of the earth. This is yet to occur. And so in verse 35, he says, I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, that is the Gentiles, the people, generic, and there will I plead with you face to face, like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. Now, don't you just find it amazing that God is using this experience in the land of Egypt and, and the, their deliverance, the Passover, they're coming through the waters. God's instructions to them as to how to live in the wilderness and the tabernacle 
and all that he had planned for them to do, and then for the time that they spent to go up to spy out the land, and then they refused to enter. And all the murmurings that God had to put up with. And he's telling them here, Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. You know, Israel's in a state of unbelief today. They're in a state of rebellion. And there's coming a day when he's going to call them forth from all the countries of the world. And he says here, I'm going to bring you into a place where I can plead with you face to face. That you might turn to me. That you might repent of your sins. Look at verse 37. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Well, that sounds pretty cool. Okay, so they're just going to pass under judgment, and he's going to bring them under the bond of the covenant. But wait a minute. Look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. He says, and I will purge out from among you the rebels. Don't think that when they meet the Lord Jesus face to face, that every Jew is going to respond favorably. Matter of fact, he says, and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Do the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 24, start to ring in your ears? When he said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of the heavens, which would be us. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh. <coughs> And then further, in Matthew chapter 7, after having told them, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heavens, the, the heavens, he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now, when we were pre- when I was preaching through um, the Sermon on the Mount, we went back to Psalm 6 and verse 8. So let's do that again. Psalm 6, the sixth Psalm, and verse 8. And there we find that Jesus was quoting David. And in quoting David, we find that David was using, excuse me, that Jesus was using this verse just like David was using it in this psalm, to tell the workers of iniquity, and I'm pardon me, but I'm just going to say it like I would say it here, get out. 
of my kingdom. He said in verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. In other words, David, Jesus, and here the Lord through Ezekiel is telling us that not all will have that privilege of entering his kingdom. Certainly not, he says, the rebels and them that transgress against me. Verse 39, as for you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, go ye, serve ye every one his idols, and hereafter also, if ye will not hearken unto me, but pollute ye my holy or my hallowed name, no more with your gifts and with your idols. For in mine holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith the Lord God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me. Now catch the context there. All of them that are in the land, not the rebels that he didn't let in. Only those that were in the land. And there he says, there will I accept them, and there will I require your offerings and the first fruits of your oblations with all your holy things. Verse 41, he says, I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein you have been scattered. And then notice what he says. When that happens, when he brings them out, in the future now, we're talking something yet to occur, when he brings them out of the lands and brings them into his land, Israel, he says, I will be sanctified, hallowed, made holy in you before the heathen. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I shall bring you into the land of Israel. And then finally, in this context, when they are, we're looking at the future now, when they are finally then in the land, the rebels have been kept out, refused entrance, Notice what he says in verse 44. And you shall know, and that day he says, you're going to know that I am the Lord when I have acted with you for what? My name's sake. It's all about the Lord's name. It's all about the honor of his name. It's all about the protecting of the hallowness and the dignity, the holiness of his name. He hallowed his name when he brought Israel out of Egypt, and he will hallow his name again when he calls Israel out of the lands, the countries of this earth, 
to the land that he has promised to give them. And they will once again occupy it. Now, having said all of that, and it's 1133, we're just now getting to the chapter that I really need to get to. Chapter 36 of Ezekiel. But this really won't take too long, I don't think. I get off my notes and I can't remember where I'm supposed to be. Well, I know we're in 36, but um, where am I here? Okay. We'll see if I can stay with it here. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 21. Again, this is a temptation to just go through the whole chapter. What a beautiful context in which the Lord <clears throat> makes this promise and declaration about his holy name. Verse 21 says, But I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes. Well, there we see that same similar kind of language. I'm acting here, not for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, my hallowed name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whither you went. In verse 23, he says, and I will sanctify my great name. When? In the future. When I call Israel out, of the countries where they are scattered around the earth and I bring them into the land, then I'm going to hallow. In that action, in that act that I do, I will hallow my name. I will set it apart. I will vindicate and defend my holy name. So then he says, This name, he says in verse 23, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. I will be set apart before you in their eyes. Can you just visualize? Can you just try to you know, propel yourself into the future and imagine Israel, the loyal, the obedient, those ones coming out, the Lord meets them face to face. Those who respond to the Lord will be allowed to go into the land and in all of that action or all of that activity, as the Gentile nations look on and they view what's happening, he says, they're going to know that day that my name has been sanctified among you, set apart among you, made holy among you. And in verse 24, he says, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. I, I, you know, when you, when you read these things, I just do not understand how people spiritualize these things and can't take this as a literal thing. 
this is what God says he's going to do. I mean, you have to really jump through some hoops to change this. But look at that next verse. He says, and then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. Boy, doesn't, now that's a different kind of terminology, but yet on the other hand, it's reminiscent of Israel coming through the Red Sea. Paul says, baptized in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, they were all baptized with Moses. Here he says he's going to sprinkle them with clean water. And you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. And a new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I suppose if you were going to be a missionary and you were dealing with Jewish people, it'd be wise to know They've got a stony heart. If you're going to try to win them to Christ, you really have a heads up if you knew that ahead of time. But there's coming a day, he says, well, I'm going to take that heart out and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh and a new spirit. And you're going to know me. Verse 27, he says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. What what a day that's going to be. What a transformation is going to take place for that nation, the nation of Israel. I, I just have real difficulty trying to imagine that the disciples had any problems understanding what Jesus was referring to when he said, pray like this, disciples. After having ministered to them up to this point and revealing himself to, uh, to them and to the nation as the Messiah and them knowing who he was and telling them, pray like this, our Father, which art in the heavens, May your name be sanctified. You know, after meditating upon this and reading this, I'd find it very difficult to think that they didn't understand exactly what the Lord was teaching them when he taught them this prayer. And what he wants you and I to know when we think upon this prayer. And if we should, perchance, even pray this prayer exactly as the Lord gave it. You know, part of praying that prayer, I think, is one that we use frequently here when we say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying for the very thing that Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray for, that in this coming day, in this new exodus, when I call my people out from the heathen, as he did back there in Egypt, 
and I deliver them, sprinkle them with clean water, and bring them into the new land, and settle them there, they know this is going to be the last time. It's going to be final. And there will not have to be any future deliverance for them. And their relationship with the Lord is sure and settled. Over, oh, and by the way, just by a sidelight, look over at verse 35. And they shall say, this land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. You know, it's no wonder they look forward to it. It's no wonder that we should look forward to that day. When God begins to bring all of these things to pass, and we can today, with confidence, pray this same prayer, hallowed be thy name, or I think more correctly, may your name be Howard. In chapter 37, just a further reminder, verse 21, about the middle of the verse, he says, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen and bring them into their own land. In verse 22, he says, I will make them one nation in the land. And he says, and one king shall be king to them all. Verse 24, he says, and David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. And then at that time, he says, they shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Verse 25, right at the end of the verse, He says, um, my servant David shall be their prince forever or unto the age or age during. Moreover, he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an age abiding covenant with them and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them unto times age abiding. From that point forward, he's saying, my covenant of peace with them is as sure as I brought them out of Egypt, and it's going to happen. So, verse 28, he says, and the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. There he says it again. And my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forever, or again, unto times age abiding, or unto the ages. So when we look at this prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, I think that we can see that there is very, very clear backdrop in the Old Testament to the prayer that Jesus is teaching his disciples. And it's 
I hope it's becoming clear to you, and I trust that when we come to the next phrase, thy kingdom come, it will be ever more clearer than it ever has. And I trust also that we would know just exactly why Jesus wanted his disciples to pray, may your name be hallowed. He was telling them by this expression that his name would be set apart amongst all the world when he brings his people into the land for that final and last time. Just what they're looking for and just what you and I are looking for. That ultimate and final exodus. That catching up to be with the Lord. What a tremendous prayer to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed, sanctified, set apart, made holy, may your name be. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we can hardly say our Father anymore without meditating or contemplating the exodus, both what has happened in the past and what is yet to happen in the future. And how it fills our hearts with boldness and confidence in what is yet to come. And it causes us with a renewed zeal to give our lives over unto you to surrender our will to the will of heaven and to live our lives in such a way that God would be glorified and your name, O God, made holy. Let us be true to it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.